Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Welcome to Vertical Life Church. I'm Pastor Joey. For those of you that are new, and we're so happy that you chose to spend some time with us This morning, we are going through a teaching series we're calling The Great Romance because the Bible is the greatest romance story ever written. It is the story about God the Father creating a people for himself and preparing a bride for his son to enjoy eternal relationship in perfect love, joy, peace, and harmony forever and forever and ever. But something happened long ago, it's that that people, that bride turned away and created a rift in God's plan. And so God has been on now a rescue mission throughout history to call his bride, his people back to himself. And we find ourselves in the book of Exodus and the last few weeks we've been diving into the story, not just how Israel crossed the Red Sea and Moses led them, the plagues of Egypt, and now they're in the wilderness. God descends on Mount Sinai and and reveals his glory to the people. He calls them into a covenant relationship. He gives them the Ten Commandments. And while he is doing this, the people, in view of his glory, seeing the glory of God, they once again turn their backs on him to serve other idols, to go their own way. And how God, in the midst of calling out to the people, saying, look, this glory, I I want to give this to you. I want to call you into this thing. I want to bless you beyond your wildest dreams, beyond your imagination, if you would just serve me and follow me and love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But they turned. And what's fascinating is that at the moment they're preparing their items for their rebellion, God brought Moses to the mountain brought him into the glory and says, Moses, I want to show you what I'm preparing. I'm preparing a place to dwell among my people. If you study ancient uh, Hebrew culture, you'll know in the marriage ceremony that the, the groom and the bride-to-be, they enter into a covenant, they exchange gifts, they make vows to one another, but they're yet not yet consummated. The, the groom goes away to prepare a place for his bride. Upwards of a year to prepare a place so that when he comes back, he can get her and bring her home into his father's house. Does that sound familiar, beloved? So God is on the mountain telling Moses, Moses, I want you to build me this place because I'm building, I'm preparing a house so that we can dwell together. He's inviting them into this most intimate, most sacred relationship And as he's describing all the ways he wants Moses to build this tent, this tabernacle called the Tent of Meeting, he gives them specific instructions. And what we learn from the Old Testament in the New Testament, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. In the New Testament, we get to see what God was doing and the realization of but what he was trying to communicate. And in this tabernacle and all the construction, we see how he was revealing the one who would come that would take away the sins of the world. The one who would come, the only begotten Son of God, and what this Messiah, this Savior would be and what he would do. And last week, we, we were talking about prayer. Man, I'm just still reeling from that 
gathering last week. Just, it seems like every prayer gathering I'm in now, it's on fire. It's just like, it's awesome. Just how God is moving and, and the way he's working in people's lives and the breakthrough that, that we're seeing with one another. It's such an awesome time to be a Christian. Such a privilege to be known by God and to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. This last week, we took a peek inside the tabernacle. We had talked about the outer coverings, and then last week, we went inside. And the tabernacle, we go ahead and show the first picture of the tabernacle up there. This was the inside. You walk in, and this is the holy place. You had the, the lampstand, the altar of incense, and the table of showbread. But the tabernacle didn't just have one room. It had two rooms. There was one room that was for everyday use. And then there was a special room that was set aside. It was called the most holy place. So this was the holy place, but the other room was the most holy place. Somebody say most holy. The most holy. So not only is this holy, but there's yet another place that is more holy, most holy. When I was growing up, I remember my parents weren't real Nazi about it, but we had two living rooms. We had one that was like the family room or the den where we hung out all the time. But then there was the one that was for special occasions, right? It was just understood. We didn't play in that one. Now, they weren't crazy and had plastic all over the, the furniture or anything like that, you know. So some people get nuts. They put a little Crisco on there. So if you attempt to sit on there, you just slip right off, right? So they weren't that crazy. But that room was for special occasions. It was for company. It was for holidays. We also had two dining spaces. We had an area just outside the kitchen, and then we had the formal dining room with the fancy table and the tablecloth and where the china would get brought out for special occasions like holidays. This is like the tabernacle. The holy place was where the priests went every day. They had to light the lamps, keep the lamps lit. The light of the Holy Spirit, we talked about last week, is to be burning and fueled every single day of your life. And that's what they had to do. They had to keep the lamps lit. They had to keep incense on the altar. And we recognize that represents the prayer of God's people, that we are to be a people of unceasing prayer. Every before God, walking in the Spirit, in communion, in connection with God. And so this was this holy place. But yet there was another place, the most holy. I wish we had time. I wish we had all day. I understand now why in scripture you read Jesus preached all day long. From morning to night, there is so much God has to say. There's so much God wants to reveal to you. And I would Love to just spend all the time ripping this apart, but my main interest today is drawing you into the story and motivating you to go discover it for yourself, but to draw you in so that your love for Jesus can come alive, that passion for him will draw you close, that you'll seek him with your whole heart, and when you do, you'll encounter his unfailing love. You'll encounter his unconditional love because there is no greater love than this. There's no greater life than this. The psalmist rightly penned the words in Psalm 27, verse 4. He says, the one thing I ask the Lord, the one thing I seek most, is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. It's talking about 
the holy place. The place where God meets with man. And I think when our hearts come alive to the Lord, what we recognize is there is no greater place to be. There is no better place to find rest, to find peace, to find encouragement, to find joy, to find healing for the wounds in our souls, to find healings for the brokenness in our bodies, to tap into the very blessings of God than in His very presence. For in Jesus, we find the satisfaction of every longing of our souls. In this story in Exodus, as Moses is on the mountain, God is giving us this glimpse into his house, the very house of the Lord, the dwelling place where God's presence would dwell and be among his people. Moses, again, is giving instructions to replicate on earth what is already in heaven. We read in the book of Hebrews that there was another tabernacle in heaven, not made by human hands, not by made of physical things, but spiritual things. So the tabernacle that we're looking at is a glimpse into heaven now. Often we think, what's heaven going to be like? And we think about clouds and harps and little cupids running around in diapers. No, that's not, that's not heaven. But heaven is glorious. Heaven is glorious. So we're getting a glimpse into the very house of God where God dwells. And what is in heaven in this place called the tent of meeting and in the nation of Israel, God invites the nation to be a priesthood, but a threefold priesthood. He wanted the nation, all the Israelites, all the Jews, to be a priest to the world, to be the prophets and priests to the world, drawing the world into the presence and glory of God. He also called a tribe of Israel, the tribe of Levi, to be the priesthood of the nation, that they would be the priests among the priests. And out of the tribe of Levi, he called a family, the family of Aaron, Aaron's line, to be the family of high priests. The high priest would represent the nation before God. The Aaronic line would act as the representative of the people before the throne of God. And he alone, the high priest alone, was the one allowed past the holy place and into the fine dining room. Into the most holy place. But he was only allowed one time a year. So you think of this. God is there. God's with you. You can see the, the cloud of glory above the tabernacle. His presence is there. But even though you get to go into the family room, there's still a wall of division between you and God. There's still a wall of separation. But yet, he one time a year was given the privilege of going into the most holy place. And he would offer the blood of the sacrifice onto the Ark of the Covenant, this relic that God had Moses build. It was a golden box with angels affixed on top that represented the very throne of God, where God right now is seated in heaven, on his very throne. It represented the throne of God, and Aaron, the high priest, he would go into that holy, most holy place, he would offer blood on the ark, and it would absolve the sins of the people for the next year. We're going through the picture of the ark of the covenant on the screen. So this is the ark in the most holy place. The only object in there, the only light in this area was the light of God himself. It was a box made of acacia wood covered in gold. It held the tablets of stone that God wrote with his own hand, the Ten Commandments. And later, it also held Aaron's rod 
and a jar of manna. If you continue to read through Exodus and into Leviticus, the, of course, we understand the Ten Commandments represent the covenant relationship with God. This is what Jesus fulfilled. He came and he said, I didn't come to, to destroy the law, do away with the law, but to fulfill it, to fulfill its purpose. So the Ten Commandments represent the fulfillment of everything God has spoken, this covenant relationship that's made possible in Jesus. The manna, the jar of manna that would be put in the ark, represented how God provided for Israel as they wandered through the desert. And what we know is that Jesus is the bread of life. And then Aaron's rod. As they did and as we do, at times we get in a mood and we decide we think we know better than God and we decide to go our own way. And the nation of Israel came to, the elders came to Moses and Aaron. They said, you know, who made you our leader? I mean, there's nothing special about you more than us. We think we could do this better than you. And Moses begins to freak out because he knows what this means. They're not just rebelling against them. They're rebelling against God again. And so Moses says, wait here. Give me the staff of every elder from the tribe of Israel, and I'll take Aaron's staff in with me. We'll put it before the Lord, and whomever's staff buds in the morning, that will be the one God has chosen. And so he takes the staffs into the, the holy place, sets them before the Lord. In the morning, only one staff budded, and that was Aaron's. It grew branches, leaves. It even grew almond blossoms. It was a miracle. But is it not interesting that it's the high priest's staff, something that was dead, that was brought back to life, that represents the one whom God has chosen? Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, reveals himself to be the very one God chose, the very one God would save to free people from their sins. On the lid of the ark, crafted with the two angels, it's called the mercy seat. This is the very covering of the ark. But what's interesting is before Aaron, the one time a year on the Day of Atonement, before he could go into the ark of the covenant, before he could go in there and sanctify the items in the holy place, he had to also go through three baptisms. He had to be baptized by water, he had to be baptized in oil, and he also had to be baptized in blood which represents before he could fulfill his purpose, he had to be baptized these three ways, which we also see in Christ. When he began his ministry, before he began his ministry, he was baptized in water. And we understand how oil represents the Holy Spirit through our study. What happened at the moment of his baptism, down came the Holy Spirit. And then as the high priest, through his own blood, the baptism of blood, he offered a sacrifice Onto the God's most holy altar. It's fascinating. It's amazing how the Bible's just describing everything Jesus would do and accomplish. Now, he and his sons, they had special garments. God did not just instruct them about what they would build in the tabernacle. He also instructed them what they should wear. And he and his sons both, the very first covering that they had, they had to wear a white linen robe from head to toe. Let's go ahead and throw that picture up on the screen. So this is a replica of what it might have looked like for their white robe. It was a linen garment without spot, without wrinkle. 
it was holy unto the Lord. And as we know that the white represents purity and perfection. In Psalm 24, 3 through 6, the psalmist says, Who may climb the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Only those whose hands and hearts are pure, who do not worship idols, never tell lies. They will receive the Lord's blessing and have a right relationship with God, their Savior. Such people may seek you and worship in your presence, O God of Jacob. Before Aaron and his sons, who we know were not sinless, Aaron during this time, as he's giving them the instructions, is making the golden calf, right? He's got some junk in his trunk. He's, he's like not right all the time. So, but these clothes represented not Aaron's perfection, but someone else's perfection. Someone else's purity. Someone else's holiness. Just to show the next picture. Aaron not only was given this purity, but on the left side you see he was also given special clothes. There were special things specifically designed for the high priest alone that he would wear, that he was commanded of Moses, God commanded Moses to instruct him that any time he went into the holy place, this is what he would wear before the Lord or else he would die. It was that important. So it's important you get these things right. You don't make a mistake on the clothes when God gives you that instruction. Let's go to the next pick. So this is kind of a breakdown of what he was instructed to wear. And we're going to talk about this really quickly just to see the symbolism of what God is, is instructing. The first covering on top of the white garments, the outer covering, was a blue robe. It was blue from top to bottom. And at the base of the robe, the garment were fashioned gold bells and multicolored pomegranates. They were made of purple, scarlet, and the color blue. Uh, they, were, they were professionally woven and hemmed around the base of his robe. And we understand the color blue represents the presence of God. And as he walked in his priestly garments, he walked in the holy place as he was ministering before the people, the sounds of bells and, and tinkling sounds would be made. And that's reminiscent of when Adam and Eve heard Jesus in the garden walking. It says they heard the sound of his presence, the sound of his voice moving throughout the garden in the cool of the day. They heard the sound. And so as he's walking through, ministering in the holy place, he's representing the very presence of God. The next, on top of the blue garment, was an ephod. It's like a vest. It was woven with the same colors, the colors that represent glory, majesty, power, and authority, and ro royalty. And in the ephod... He also had a chest piece. In the chest piece, there were 12 stones of brilliant color, different stones. And on each stone was engraved the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. It was amazing. And there's gold settings that attached them together. It was beautifully ornate. And we discovered last week also on his shoulders... There were two onyx stones. There were two gold settings on the shoulders, and this is really significant. And on the shoulders were also two stones with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel engraved on them. And again, we discovered last week with the table of showbread, the number of 12 represents the righteous government of God. In Isaiah chapter 9, 6, and 7, a prophecy of the Messiah that would come, it says, For a child is born to us, a son is given, and what will rest on his shoulders? What does that say? The government will rest on his shoulders. So here he has the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on his shoulders, 
the number 12 representing the government, and we know from earlier in our study, the names of the nation of Israel represent the how God was going to open the door to the salvation, to the kingdom of God, to all the world. So the government is resting on his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and his throne or in his peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor, David, for all eternity. And the passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. The one who is coming, whom the government of God rests on his shoulders, would be God himself. And we know him as the name Jesus Messiah. And not only, again, did he have the 12 tribes, but he had the 12 precious stones engraved by birth order on his chest. In this way, Aaron would always remember who he represented, the people before the Lord. But we also understand that if you were here when we talked about, the, again, the book of Exodus, uh, and we're talking about the names, the names are significant, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. But behind the chest piece, behind all these ornate stones, there was a pocket sewn, and there were two additional stones in this pocket. So he was, he was all bedazzled. God like, had him bedazzled from head to toe. But these stones that he had in the pocket behind the chest piece, they had two specific names, the Urim and the Thummim. Say that ten times fast. I, I, I dare you. But they were special stones used to determine God's will. And they were to be kept over Aaron's heart. The name Urim and Thummim can be translated as lights and perfection. Lights and perfection. And we know about Jesus. He is the light of the world, John 8, 12. Says Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you have the light that leads to life. That word life translated in the English can also be translated uh, as um, absolute fullness of life, both essential and ethical, which belongs to God. In other words, it can be translated as perfection. The fullness of God. So Jesus is both Urim and Thummim. He is the light that leads to life, light and perfection. Upon Aaron's head is this turban, and on the turban with a blue sash is a gold medallion, which has the engraving reading, holy unto the Lord. The word holy means to be set apart, unlike anything else. The word phrase that we use for Jesus, the only begotten son, that word begotten means unique one. It doesn't mean born of God. It means altogether unique, unlike anything else. There is none like him. This golden crown is on Aaron's head, revealing that the one to whom he represents is set apart. He's begotten of the Lord. Now, typically when we think of Jesus, we only think of him with the crown of thorns at his crucifixion. But in Revelation 14, 14, John in his revelation, he says this. He says, I saw a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was someone like the Son of Man. And he had a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. It is Jesus who wears the gold crown, who is holy unto the Lord. So from top to bottom, Aaron is arrayed in glorious apparel. And these clothes are anointed and he is warned he must wear these clothes as holy when he comes to minister before the Lord or else he will die. Why was God so serious about his clothes? Well, it's because it's not Aaron's holiness that was up to God's standard. He represented someone else. It was the righteousness 
of the one who was holy unto the Lord that qualified him as he walked in the Lord's righteousness to stand before God and minister unto the Lord. And it's through Jesus' righteousness, his holiness, we're able to approach the Lord. Now, something interesting that on the Day of Atonement, again, it's one day a year when he is allowed into the, the, the most holy place to offer the sacrifice unto the Ark of the Covenant. When he goes into the holy place, he is not allowed to wear all of his bedazzled apparel. He has to take off the crown. He has to take off the chest piece. He has to take off the urim and the thummim. He has to take off the, the stones on his shoulder. He has to remove everything except for the linen garments. If we want to show that picture on the screen. He has to come before the Lord simply as a man without sin. He cannot approach God in the form of a God representing God's holiness. He has to represent a man who is without sin. And Jesus, in Philippians 2, 6 through 8, it says, Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he did what, beloved? He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, was born a human being, and when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Just as Aaron in his humanity had to humble himself before the Lord, Jesus humbles. The one who is in glorious appearance humbles himself as he came to offer his own life as the atoning sacrifice that would take away the sins of the world. He came as a normal man, but yet without sin. So good, so awesome. And again, there's so much more here. We're just scratching the surface. Like this is Cliff's Notes. There are volumes written on these things. And I encourage you, if this interests you at all, to dive in. But here in the book of Exodus, what's being revealed is about who Jesus is and what he would do. There's greater significance here to the story and the great romance than just these instructions and how they relate to Jesus. Because Aaron's priesthood was not eternal. One day Aaron died. And his son had to take his place. His, his priesthood wasn't eternal. The, the atoning sacrifice that they gave on the Day of Atonement, that wasn't sufficient forever. They had to repeat it again and again and again. Every year, the same time, the high priest would have to go before the mercy seat and offer this atoning sacrifice. Yet there was a prophet named Daniel in the nation of Israel who received a revelation, and he prophesied about the day the Messiah would come and what he would do. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, he says, A period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people and the holy city to finish their rebellion, to put an end to their sin, to atone for their guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to confirm the prophetic vision, and to anoint the what? The most holy place. So we don't have time to get into all the, the numerics and what he's talking about with the, the number system, but if you study it, you look at the time that the king gave the decree to rebuild the city and the temple in the book of Nehemiah. If you calculate the days into years, it brings you right at year zero where all of our history is measured from. The time Jesus arrives and gives his life on the cross. Daniel will go on to say this has to happen before the destruction of the temple again, which happens in AD 70. There is no other candidate for Messiah other than Jesus that qualifies that meets the description of everything the scripture has revealed about him. It's so fascinating and so interesting. 
It's so awesome to see how God is just giving us the, the clues all along the way to know that Jesus is the one in whom we need to trust. But the Messiah puts an end to sin. He brings everlasting perfection, perfection and righteousness. How does he do it? He does it by becoming our high priest, our high priest before God, the eternal high priest, not after Aaron or Levi, but after an eternal order of Melchizedek as prophesied in the Psalms. And when he entered, not the physical temple, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 12, it says this. It says, Christ has now become the high priest over all good things that have come. He entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands, is not part of this created world, with his own blood. Somebody say, with his own blood. With not the blood of goats or calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Our redemption, forgiveness from God, restored relationship is secured forever. How awesome is this? We don't have to keep offering the same sacrifices year after year because it only like covered us for a time. This is permanent. And if your brain works like mine, you might ask, since the scripture just said, now he's become the high priest. If it was at the moment of his sacrifice, he became the high priest. And everything in the tabernacle and everything God is, is revealing reveals on earth what was present in heaven. The question that comes up in my mind is, why did Jesus have to become our high priest to begin with? Why did he have to become the high priest? If he's God Almighty, if this is the creator of the universe, the one who spoke everything into existence, why would he need to become the intercessor for us in heaven? And so I began to pray through this, and I began to dig in, and God reveals not just what happens on earth, but what was also happening in heaven in the Scripture. He gives us a glimpse in this tabernacle through Aaron, through Moses, and it mirrors exactly in heaven what was happening on earth. If there is a high priest on earth, there must have been a high priest in heaven. If there was a throne on earth, there must have been a throne in heaven. We see that. It's confirmed. There's a tabernacle on earth and a tabernacle in heaven. So if there's a high priest on earth, there must be one in heaven. Yet Jesus doesn't become that high priest till after his sacrifice. So who was the high priest in heaven before the Lord? Ezekiel chapter 28. God is speaking through the prophet and having him write a song for the king of Tyre. As often as scripture does in prophetic language, God will use a prophet to speak to a nation and he'll use some symbolism and metaphor to rebuke or talk about coming judgment. But in that, he will also reveal deeper and greater truths at the same time. And in this letter to the king of Tyre, God relates his judgment to this king, but not just to this king only, but to another important figure in the great romance story. In Ezekiel 28, 12 through 14, here's what the word of God says. It says, Son of man, sing this funeral song for the king of Tyr. Give him this message from the sovereign Lord. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom, 
and exquisite in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Your clothing was adorned with every precious stone, red carnelian, pale green peridot, white moonstone, blue green beryl, onyx green jasper, blue lapis lazuli, turquoise, and emerald, all beautifully crafted for you and set in the finest gold. They were given to you on the day you were created. I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian, and you had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. This individual that God is referring to could not have been the king of Tyre because he was never in Eden, the garden of God. The garden of Eden was destroyed in the flood. And prior to, God set angels with a flaming sword preventing anyone from getting in there. There were only four people in the garden of Eden. There was God. There was Adam. There was Eve. And who was the other one? The devil. Satan. And God says to the prophet, he was the model of wisdom and perfection. The word light, with the urim and thum, the word light is also translated as revelation. What is wisdom? The manifold revelation of God. He was the model of God's revelation and perfection. The high priest kept in his pocket behind his breastplate these light and perfection, these stones. And what is Lucifer? He is the model of light and perfection in his creation. God's divine wisdom. He was not just a model of God's divine wisdom and revelation. He represented the perfection of God's holiness to God's people. He was in Eden, the place where God communed with man. If you look at the description of his clothing here in Ezekiel 28, on his chest was every precious stone plated in gold. Just like the high priest found in Exodus. Just like Aaron, he was ordained and anointed and set apart. The Bible here says he was the mighty angelic guardian who had access to and walked among the stones of fire. Where are the stones in fire? In Daniel chapter 7, he says, I watched as thrones were put in place, and the ancient one who sat down to judge, his clothing was white as snow, his hair like purest wool. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire and a river of fire pouring out, flowing from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him. Many millions stood to attend to him. Then the court began its session, and the books were opened. Where are the stones of fire? But in the very presence of God. Before his throne, this individual in Ezekiel 28 had access to the dwelling place of God, not on earth, but his heavenly throne where the angels dwell. Just as Aaron was only able to go before the throne one time a year, Lucifer had special access to the throne. The high priest was established to minister to the people, to be the leader of worship to God for the people, to intercede for the people, to, to be that go-between between the people and the Lord. Regarding angels in Hebrews 1.14, God tells us they are not all, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to them who shall be heirs of salvation? Every angel ever created was created to minister to God's people. That was his job. 
to intercede, to be the go-between, to represent God's holiness and perfection. And so as we're getting this glimpse in the, mo the moment of Lucifer's creation, that word Lucifer is a translation, it means shining one or, or brilliant one, fiery one. We get a glimpse into what he might, this position he might have held in heaven as the high priest of heaven. And he held that position until something happened, until corruption was found in him. Ezekiel 28, 15 through 19, God says, you were blameless in all you did from the day you were created until the day evil was found in you. Your rich commerce led you to violence and you sinned, and I banished you in disgrace from the mountain of God. I expelled you, O mighty guardian, from your place among the stones of fire. Your heart was filled with pride because of all your beauty. Your wisdom was corrupted by your love of splendor, so I threw you to the ground and exposed you to the curious gaze of kings. You defiled your sanctuaries with your many sins and dishonest trade, so I brought fire out from within you and it consumed you. I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who are watching, all who knew you are or appalled at your fate, and you have come to a terrible end and you will exist no more. Think about this. Satan... We know Satan tempted Eve in the garden. And through that exchange, he gained authority over the whole world. He blinds the minds of those who don't believe. He leads us into temptation and sin. And he brought forth a curse upon all creation. The one who was supposed to represent God to the people, to lead the worship of people, the worship of God uh, from the people to the Lord, now is leading man away from the worship of God and into sin. Isaiah 14, 12, it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. You've been thrown down to the earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven, set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. Instead, you'll be brought down to the place of the dead, down to its lowest depths. He did not just lead us into sin, but he led us away from the worship of God Altogether, why? So he could be worshipped as God. So he could be worshipped. He wanted to exalt himself, his own throne, above even God's. The, he relished in his own glory and splendor. And this is, we could see this at the temptation of Christ. As Jesus is fasting for 40 days, he's there weak and alone. And the enemy comes and the last temptation he brings before him, he says, if you would just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Worship has been his motive the entire time to be worshiped, to be glorified, that even above God, because he saw his beauty and thought, man, I'm pretty special. I'm pretty significant. Who made God anyway? And that pride and that arrogance caused his fall. You see, he saw the beauty and the splendor of his creation. He became proud, but like Aaron, his glory was not his own. His glory reflected the one who was truly glorious. You see, when Aaron had to remove his glory to enter the holy of holies, Lucifer wore his proudly into the throne room. And he desired to even sit even above God, and that pride caused him to rise in rebellion and fall. And the intercessor of man, the one who was meant to intercede for us, becomes something altogether different.
different. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 says, I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, it has come at last, salvation and power in the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ for the what? What's that say? The accuser of the brethren or the brothers and sisters has been thrown down to the earth, the one who accuses them before who? God, day and night. The one who was supposed to intercede because of pride and arrogance, because of his own self-righteousness, who wanted to rise up beyond his stature, beyond his place, became the accuser of the brethren. So rather than leading us to worship, he led us to sin. Leading us from, to freedom, he led us to bondage. Offering sacrifices, he became requiring sacrifices. Jesus said the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy but there is one who came to bring us life and life more abundantly. Now here's the brilliance of God. The difference between the breastplate of Aaron and that of Lucifer is Aaron had 12 stones, which represents the righteous government of God. The kingdom of God shall come and it shall have no end. But there were not 12 stones on Lucifer's chest plate. He only had nine stones. And the number nine is used 49 times in Scripture, and the number nine symbolizes divine accomplishment, ending, or finality. It's interesting that Christ died at the ninth hour of the day when he was crucified to make a way of salvation. The day of atonement, the day the high priest would go into the most holy place to offer the sacrifice for the sins. This special day considered to be the most holy in the Jewish people of all the days of the year. This special day begins at sunset on the ninth day of the seventh month. The seventh month meaning perfection. The number nine meaning divine accomplishment or finality. Satan's breastplate, though beautiful and splendid, has a prophetic message that the kingdom of this man, of the accuser, of this one, is going to come to an end. And there's going to arise another kingdom that shall have no end. God is prophesying an end to sin, an end to the kingdom of darkness, finality to the kingdom of Satan that he was trying to set up for himself. Read in Genesis 3, 14 and 15, God casts the enemy down. In verse 15, he says, I'll cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. You will strike, he will strike your head, but you will only strike his heel. You're going to cause damage. You're going to hurt people. You're going to wound the people of God, but one day they're going to triumph in ultimate victory, and your head is going to be destroyed. The, this judgment on Satan is that he's banished there will be war, and he will be ultimately defeated. And the Aaronic priesthood was not only a foreshadow of things to come, but it was a continual reminder to the devil. Every year, Aaron went into the holy place and offered the atoning sacrifice. Every year, it was a reminder to the devil. Countdown has become. Your days are numbered. Soon, you will be overthrown. Because there is another high priest coming who's going to take your place. That is going to dethrone you and rise up with all authority in heaven 
and on earth. Hebrews 9, 12 again, it says, beloved, with his own blood. Not the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all time and secured a redemption forever. Think about the story of what's happening here. The story behind the story as Jesus is now being tried. He's being judged. He's being beaten and wounded. And how the enemy, you know, is like, this is getting good. I'm getting ready to do this. I'm going to destroy him. He's going to be defeated. I'm going to get my throne, my power, my dominion. I'm, my name's going to be glorified. I'm finally going to have what I want. And Jesus gets nailed on the cross at the ninth hour. And he says, devil, it is finished. It's over. It's done. Your power and your rule has become undone. And Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says, Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, so the Son became flesh and blood, for only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil, who had the power of death. In this way he could set free all who have lived their lives to the slaves as fear, to the fear of dying. Whoa! Come on, guys. This is better than a touchdown in a football game. Come on. The one who has tried his, your entire life to steal, kill, and destroy, to wreck your marriage, to ruin your relationships, to cause addiction, to wreck your finances, to come against you, to make you feel you're not good enough, not smart enough, and gosh darn, people hate you, all that stuff. The enemy's power is broken. It was broken when Jesus, once for all time, entered the holy place, offered his own blood, and destroyed the power of the enemy. Satan tried to exalt his throne and demand worship from the world, causing death to reign over the world. This is why Jesus hates religion and came against the religious leaders time and time again, because religion binds. Religion destroys. Religion leads to bondage. It breathes death. It condemns. It breathes death over the souls of men. If you believe you can rise up to God's glory through your own self-righteousness, you will be sadly mistaken on the day of judgment. It makes you believe you can accomplish all things through your righteousness, that you're good enough to just make it into heaven. Following the enemy leads to sin and death, but Jesus has come that you might have life. And he went to God's throne onto the stones of fire into the holy place and offered his own blood. See, the entirety of this story, the tabernacle of Moses, it points to Jesus. And in the holy place, if you remember, you have the, the gold lampstand, you have the altar of incense and the table of showbread. In there, you still had a dividing wall between the holy place and God's presence. So even that high priest every year could not, any other time but that one special day, could not go in to the place before God. But when Jesus gave his life, then he offered that one sacrifice to put an end to sin, to end unrighteousness, to anoint the holy place that Daniel prophesied in Mark 13, 53 through 78. It says, as he's on the cross, Jesus uttered, Another loud cry breathed his last, and the curtain and the sanctuary of the temple tore in two from top to bottom. Boom! It's over. 
What you had on them, enemy, you don't have anymore. The way is made open. The way to life has come. And that veil itself symbolizes something so special and so glorious. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, not our own righteousness, but by his blood, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is, through his flesh. What separated us, that revelation of what separated us from the presence of God, Jesus embodied in his body, and when his body was broken, the veil was torn. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of our faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That curtain of separation, that veil, was the flesh of the Messiah. He veiled his glory when he came into humanity so the veil could be torn. And because the veil was torn, the blood could be applied. The atonement for sin could be made. The end of sin could come. The path leading into the holy place could be opened for all people for all time. See, beloved, we could not come into the presence of God until this was done. But now, not only can we come into the presence of God, but the presence of God can come into us. You see the importance now of what Jesus said in John 14, 6. You could probably all quote this verse. It says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. This verse is used by Christians to argue which religion is true. Oh, Christianity has to be true. Why? Jesus said, I'm the only way. So Jesus said it, you know. Let's just quote that verse without understanding the significance of what they're saying. If not for the cross and the resurrection, and if not for the flesh of Christ being torn, the veil would not have been torn. And the way would not have been opened to us. This doesn't simply mean that Christianity is the only right path. It means that without his death and resurrection, the tearing of the curtain, salvation is not even possible. Unless you go through the veil, you cannot come to the Father. Why? Because the Father's on the other side of the veil. He's on the other side. But because the body of Jesus was torn, the doorway's been blown wide open. And now we who are lost to God, separated by sin, enslaved by the devil, have been purified by the blood, washed in the water, made holy through the anointing power of the Holy Spirit. Come on. And he adopted us into his family. You don't get to just come, in, come into the room, into the family room. You get to become part of the family. And he made us priests over his house. One thing I ask, one thing I seek, is to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus is our eternally exalted, righteous, and holy high priest. Jesus, the Messiah, now and forever. And he is not 
before the throne of God accusing us. He is forever in intercession for us. Do you know Jesus is praying for you? You believe that? Every other religion says, you give and die for me. Jesus said, I'm going to give it all and die for you. You pray to me, and we'll see what happens. Jesus says, no, I'm praying for you. We can't comprehend this God of ours. The enemy forsook his position and became our accuser. He not only abandoned us, he set his sights on destroying us. But in Hebrews 13, 5, Jesus said, I will never fail you, and I will never abandon you. I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. I am seated at the right hand of power. My work is done. I'm seated. I'm not going anywhere. This is my house. There's so much more we could go into. See, these times I really have to think, do I end it now or do I keep going? But I just feel like there's something God wants us to get a hold of. Because this isn't just something good to think about. Jesus is seated right now as the high priest at the right hand of power, at the stones of fire before the throne of God. That's where he is. And as the people of God who have become the priests of God... We need to get this into our spirit, into our hearts, because this is identity. This is what we are. We're not what we once were, right? All things old are past. All things have become new. We're something different. If you're in Christ, you've placed your faith in Jesus. You've, you've asked him to be your Lord and Savior. You have a relationship with God. The Bible says we're all together new. And so we have this new identity. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, here's what Paul is telling the church of Ephesus. He says, Jesus, he raised us from the dead along with Christ. So when Jesus rose from the dead... All who place their faith in him have all now been spiritually raised with Christ. Your spirit has been raised with the Lord and seated with him in heavenly realms because we're united with Christ Jesus. Though you may be physically here on the earth, your spirit is in heaven with Christ on the throne right now. Right now. The one who made the way. So you're, you didn't just get to walk into the holy place. You got to go past the veil into the most holy place and take a seat with Jesus at the right hand of power. We are his priests. We are still here physically in body, mind, and soul. We're here to be his priests, the sons and daughters of God. Together we've become building blocks for his new temple, living stones, the very body of Christ. We're his representatives to the world. What Israel failed to do, the church is meant to fulfill. Where Israel failed, we're to rise and take our place. In us, he's placed the lampstand, the light of the Holy Spirit. He meets with us at the place of prayer at the altar of incense. 
His kingdom's revealed at the table of showbread in us with the bread and the wine as we took communion coming in, representing communion with the body and blood of Jesus. It is the kingdom of God among us. Luke 17, 21 says, Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. So not only are you seated with him spiritually, but he has come to live inside of you. His kingdom is in you, and he wants the kingdom to come out of you. Our responsibility is not just to simply maintain the house of God, but it's to intercede for the people, to intercede for the world, to compel those people of the world to come to the place of meeting. Come and encounter your creator. Come and meet your redeemer, the lover of your souls. Come and finally be introduced to your heavenly father. You don't have to fear death anymore. Satan is defeated. And Jesus has risen from the dead. The debt has been paid. Beloved, if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the offer is still on the table. He's calling. Come. Confess your sins and I'll forgive. Trust me in my death and resurrection and I'll save. You can be born again. Jesus has given you access to everlasting life. This week in my prayer time, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. God's just been revealing himself in crazy ways. But this week I was in prayer. And as I was in praying, sometimes I get pictures or visions from the Lord. And I was praying this week and I heard his voice. That Jesus said, I want to show you something. And in my mind, as you can see, it's like a movie screen. What's happening is I'm in my office. It's kind of weird because I know I'm in my office, but in my mind, I'm also in my office, so it's kind of, kind of weird. But I'm there, and the Holy Spirit shows up. And I know the Holy Spirit's not a dove, but sometimes he shows up as a man-sized dove, and that's kind of funny and weird at the same time. But I understand the picture of what he's trying to represent. And in this moment, he puts his wing around my shoulder and my arm around him like we're going to walk somewhere, almost like you would help a limping person, you know, walk. And we're looking outside the office window, and we go towards the window, and we're going to jump. And I thought maybe we'd start flying like we've done in the past and in other encounters I've had with the Lord. But this time, we fell right into my pool in the backyard. And I'm like, okay, this is interesting. I've, you know, never had one of these before. And so he lets me go, and I'm kind of like sinking down a little bit, but I know my pool's only eight feet deep, so I didn't have anything to worry about. But I keep sinking and sinking and sinking. And I look up, and he's swimming away, and I can see the light above me gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And I'm continuing to sink. And at this time, I feel like, well, I'm going to run out of breath. I'm so low. And, and it starts beginning hard to breathe. And I start falling faster and faster. And I'm like, oh, what's happening? I, I, I don't know why I'm sinking. And then the water turns to air, and now I'm free-falling like I've jumped out of an airplane. I'm like, okay, this is... This is what God wants to show me, and I'm going down, and I'm going fast, and I'm tumbling in the air, and I finally am able to sturdy myself, but as soon as I get straight, I hit smack on the ground, and I know in the, the body, in the vision, every bone in my body shatters, instantly shattered. I'm like crumpled like a pretzel, and I don't feel any pain, but I know I'm just not in a, I'm not in a good spot, and behind me, this giant angel 
And again, I wasn't afraid or scared, but this giant angel comes and grabs me, starts dragging my body. And as we're going forward in this dark place, these giant doors open up. And in front of me is this room that is like a molten lava. It's like fire. You can see the steam and the, just the heat. And these uh, white figures that I knew were souls just wandering around in this place. And they were moaning. They were, it was pretty terrifying. But I keep getting dragged closer and closer. I'm like, this doesn't seem right. Like, I'm a, I'm a child of God. I don't, I don't get to go to hell. That's not, that's not my place. And, but I, I'm going along with the vision, just wondering what's going on, what's wrong with my body. He takes me into this place. It's hot. I can't breathe. He throws me down this embankment of lava rock. And I try to climb up. And every time I get about three inches, I slide back down. I can't get out. And I look at my skin, and it starts to ignite on fire. And I, and I know this is a terrible horrible place that I don't want to be. And I start calling out to God. It's like, Jesus, I don't want to be here. And in a moment, the light goes out and Jesus comes in and the light of glory just makes everything dim. And he picks me up. I'm instantly healed. And we walk back out to that first room. And then I turn around and he's looking into this place with all of these souls. And I start calling out. It's like, hey, come on, the door's open. Come on, come. And they can't hear me. It's like the sound of the flames and the fire is too intense. And I'm shouting. I'm shouting like, come on, come. And I'm feeling like inside like th maybe this is what happens when, when people die. Like after they die, they go here. And, and this is what he's wanting to show me. And then Jesus turns to me and he, he quotes John 3.18 to me. And he says, he that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. He that believes in Jesus is not condemned, but he that doesn't believe is condemned already. And I knew what he was saying. Because right now, if we're in Christ, where are we? In heaven. If you don't believe, you're not waiting for condemnation. You're already condemned. You're already there. And with that realization, the intensity increased, and I start shouting at the top of my lungs, and I see some movement. Some people start coming, but then they turn back and walk away, and I'm screaming and shouting at the top of my lungs. And Jesus said, I'm raising you up to raise up other voices because more people have to go and sound the call, and more people begin to show up, and we begin to shout, and the voices don't turn back. The souls begin to walk and slowly and surely begin to trickle out of the door. And I just see this in this time, in this place, if you are in Christ, you know the way has been opened. The doorway is opened. He's looking for people to step into the flames and be willing to pull people back out. He's looking for believers to take this thing seriously, to love the Lord God with all their heart, their soul, their mind, and their strength, to recognize they have a greater purpose, and that is to go into the world and preach the gospel and to baptize new believers in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is waiting for His prophets, His priests, His preachers, His pastors, His teachers to rise and shout with one voice, Come to Jesus, the salvation of your soul. He's waiting. This is the time that he wants voices to arise. Beloved, the Ark of the Covenant, God's throne, and everything in the tabernacle was designed to be carried on poles so that wherever the nation went, God would go with them. 
Do you know who it is you carry? Do you know who it is you have in you? Do you understand what you've been called into? Do you understand the importance of the hour? The door of separation has been opened. And yet there are so many who have yet to answer the call. Jesus said, the work is finished. Now all we have to do is go get them. It's all we have to do to go love them enough to call them in to this life that God has called us into. And I'm just a fool enough to believe that maybe there's somebody here today that's still wandering in the flames. You've not made that personal decision to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You've been to church, you've practiced in religious things, but there's not been that moment where it was personal for you, where you said, today, it's, it's the day. I'm making this thing real. And if that's you, we're calling desperately for you to answer the call. To answer. Give your life to Jesus. And I promise you, you'll never be the same. You will never be the same. You will never be the same. If you're a believer in Jesus and you're not seeking him with your whole heart, you're not rising up to pursue his will and call for your life, there are so many people who are wandering. And one day that door that's open, it's going to close again. And it won't open evermore. And we have a small window of time. A small window to love people through the door. I'm crazy enough to believe that right now there's a name in everybody's mind. And in just a moment when we begin to worship, if you need to come, you need to give your life to Jesus. You want to make that day today. We have a prayer team up here. They're going to pray with you. It's the most important decision you'll ever make. I'm going to invite you to come. If there's somebody on your heart and mind that you know needs Jesus, I'm going to invite you to come and flood this altar, get on your knees, and begin to shout to heaven for the soul of that person. If you're struggling with any other kind of issue and you need prayer, if you need prayer for your body, you have a brokenness in your body, sickness, maybe you have a spiritual issue, maybe a struggle, come forward and our prayer team wants to pray with you. Why? Because the devil's power is broken. Death is no more. The power of Jesus has come and the same power that raised him from the dead lives in each one of us and God wants to break out in this place. So this time of worship is not just to sing, it's to respond. To come and draw near into the holy of holies, to come to the holy place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, for your mercy and your grace. God, how you love us. How you love us. I thank you, God, for the Bible. I thank you for the word. I thank you for every letter, every grammar mark penned in the scripture, because it is life. It is life. I thank you, Holy Spirit, 
for being real and available and active. I thank you for revelation. And I thank you, Jesus, that you promised you will never leave us or forsake us. You've secured our redemption forever. The blood has been applied to the altar. And now we can boldly come before your gracious throne. God, I pray for everyone here. Holy Spirit, I know you're at work. I know you're touching. I know you're moving. God, I pray for the one right now that is torn. Have I accepted? Have I not accepted? Did I do that when I was a kid? Did I not do that as a kid? I think I did. And I think I'm okay. God, whoever that is, I pray, God, when we stand, they would come down and make it known that it would be beyond a shadow of a doubt that anyone here who needs to receive you as Lord and Savior would receive salvation. They'd be adopted into your family today. God, I pray for those that just need to rekindle the flames in their heart, the flames of the Holy Spirit, to fall in love with you once again. They would come and they would fall down and they would find the oil is waiting for them. God, I pray, Lord, for those that are in our lives we know are far from you that need a relationship with God. I pray, God, that you would put it on us enough to care, to come and begin calling on heaven for their souls. God, I pray your healing hand would be extended now and that you would touch bodies and mend and glorify Jesus in your healing power. I pray, God, for the one that needs encouragement, that your prophetic word would be released and that your Holy Spirit would speak to even the most guarded places, unlocking the bondage and pain that's been rooted there for many years, Lord, and you bring healing and wholeness today. Let the worship of God be on our lips and a two-edged sword in our hand as you release the word today in Jesus' name. From all of us at Vertical Life Church, we want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you and God bless.